turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we're going to be there, and also then we'll be in Psalm uh, 60. We're in the middle of our series called God of the Valleys, and, uh, and, and we've talked about a number of different valleys. We, first, we started off by talking about how God is the God of everything. Whether you're on the mountaintop in your life or you're in the valley of your life, it makes no difference because God is still God wherever you are, no matter what's going on in your life. By the way, before I get in the Word, I just want to say a special welcome. We got some, some very uh, special guests here with us, our friends from Reno, Nevada. They're like family to us. Joe and Connie Burns are here, and I want you just to give them a welcome. Would you do that? I won't make them stand up, but... Uh, we don't usually recognize guests, but these are special to us. Um, anyway, let's, let's move on. Uh, we, we've talked about different valleys. We talked about the valley of, of faith. We talked about the valley of miracles. We've talked about uh, a, a number of different things. And today we're going to be talking about the valley of victory. Now, Psalm 60, we're going to be in 2 Samuel 8, Psalm 60. There are so many different psalms that... Uh, the context of which we just simply don't know. We don't know what was going on in the psalmist's life, David's life, or whoever wrote it at the time. But Psalm 60 is one that we do know. Psalm 60 was actually written as a result of what happened in 2 Samuel chapter 8. And you know, there are many, many deep, rich resources for teaching and edification in the life of David. It's my favorite uh, uh, Bible character, there's so much depth, there's so much to learn there. But there is one, and this is one we're going to be reading about this morning, that's often overlooked. In fact, uh, one rarely ever hears a sermon on 2 Samuel chapter 8, but I believe it will be a help to us as we attempt to move into the victory of God. So are you there now in in the scripture, 2 Samuel chapter 8? Are you there? Say amen. All right, let's read together. In the course of time, David defeated the Philistines and subdued them, and he took Metheg Ammah from the control of the Philistines. David also defeated the Moabites. He made them lie down on the ground and measured them off with a length of cord. Every two lengths of them were put to death, and the third length was allowed to live. So the Moabites became subject to David and brought him tribute. Moreover, David defeated Hadadezer, king of Rehob and king of Zobah, when he went to restore his monument at the excuse me, Euphrates River. Boy, I can't say these names right today. Verse 4, David captured a thousand of his chariots, 7,000 charioteers, and 20,000 foot soldiers. He hamstrung all but a hundred of the chariot horses. When the Arameans of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David struck down 22,000 of them. He put garrisons in the Aramean kingdom of Damascus, and the Arameans became subject to him and brought tribute. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. David took the gold shields that belonged to the officers of Hadadezer and brought them to Jerusalem. From Teba and Barathai, towns that belonged to Hadadezer, King David took a great quantity of bronze. When Tau, king of Hamath, heard that David had defeated the entire army of Hadadezer, he sent his son Joram to King David to greet him and congratulate him on his victory in battle over Hadadezer, who had, who had been at war with Tau. Joram brought with him articles of silver, of gold, and of bronze. King David dedicated these articles to the Lord as he had done with the silver and gold from all the nations he had subdued. Edom and Moab, the Ammonites and the Philistines and Amalek, he also dedicated the plunder taken from Hadadezer, son of, of, of Rehob, king of Zobah. 
And David, and this, is the, this is the key verse, and David became famous after he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. He put garrisons throughout Edom, and all the Edomites became subject to David. The Lord gave David victory wherever he went. All right, now let's turn over to Psalm 60. This is the psalm that David wrote in thanksgiving and in memory of the Valley of Salt. Now, as we read it, I want you to notice the subtitle. It says, For the director of music, to the tune of the Lily of the Covenant, a miktam of David, for teaching. So this is a song that was written for the purpose of teaching a great truth. When he fought Aram Naharim and Aram Zobah, and when Joab returned and struck down 12,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt. That's the purpose of the song. Now, let's be, we begin the words of David. Verse 1, chapters, uh, Psalm 60. O God, you have cast us off. You have broken us down. You have been displeased. O restore us again. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its breaches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. You have given a banner to those who fear you, that it may be displayed because of the truth. Selah, which just means pause and ponder. Verse 5, that your beloved may be delivered, save with your right hand and hear me. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice. I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim also is the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab is my washpot. Over Edom I will cast my shoe. Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Edom? Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with your armies? Give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread, tread down our enemies. But just in passing before we pray, this is, let me just say this psalm is almost identical to Psalm 108. You might want to write that in the margin, and then you can read that on your own. Just don't read that during the sermon. But uh, just a side note there. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray now that in the next few moments that your Holy Spirit would, would have access to the inner man in each one of us. We pray that you would speak to every listener and that you would say those things to us and in us that we need to hear. Lord, we believe that you have a word for us this morning. And that when we get out, uh, go out from here, Lord God, that, that, uh, that we don't want them to say, be able to say what a great sermon or what a great church. But when we go out, we want to be able to say, surely this day I have heard from the Lord. And I know you can do this and I believe that you will. So I thank you for it in advance. And I pray this all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. By the time we reach 2 Samuel chapter 8, David is in the ascendancy of his military and political career. David is beginning to find the fullness of the blessing of God. Everything that David touches turns to gold. We, we see in chapter 5 that David is made king of the unified Israel. He moves the capital of his kingdom from Hebron to Jerusalem after he takes the city of Jerusalem from the Jebusites. The Ark of the Covenant is brought in with tremendous fanfare and excitement. We see that there are wars of expansion and conquest as David solidifies and builds his kingdom. The civil war with the people of Saul is now over. 
The people are unified in a single kingdom with David as its single monarch. David now begins to reach out to establish his kingdom, not only in peace, but in power and prosperity. He becomes the conquering warrior king, claiming the full territory that God has given to him. And this moment in David's life, what we need to understand is, this is the crucial moment for David. It's not when he's facing uh, despair later on in his life when his son Absalom tries to overthrow his kingdom. This is the crucial moment for David because this is the moment when everything is going really, really well. He cannot lose, it seems. This is a crucial moment. and The reason for that is because more men, listen to me, I should say more people, not just men, more people can endure defeat than can weather victory. There there are many athletes whose character and lives and families are destroyed by unparalleled success. There are athletes whose character is forged in strength because they're delegated to the second string and they then respond to the adversity and good character and faithfulness while the superstar falls to characterless disaster. Entertainers, businessmen, politicians, and ministers who who in in the face of huge victory, they triumph on every hand. The conquering power of God and the anointing of the Lord is obviously with them, but then they lose their souls and they lose their life's work. How many times have we seen that happen? Here, David is experiencing such an anointing of God that he seems to be the man who cannot err. Every battle is won. Every enemy is routed before him. Massive armies against him come against him and and David wins. Yet David longs to know the sustaining power of God in his life in such a way that he does not fall to the sin of arrogance and pride. You you hear it in the cry of of it in Psalm 60. See how he begins. He, He reminds himself of the hard times the nation has been through. Lord, we've been through a time of terrible struggle. We've gone through a time when the nation was plowed up, when our our king fell into sin and he was rejected by you. We, We went through a time when the Philistines defeated us on every hand, when every battle was lost. Then we went through a time where there was such civil war, there was a breach in the middle of the congregation of the faithful. It appeared as if there was no way that that Israel could ever be healed. It appeared that the internal warfare, the the tribal warfare was going to be an ongoing generational war. And he says in the first three verses, God, we've gone through a time of astonishment and confusion. What does he mean? He means a, a time when the people of Israel, when the people of God saw the things that were happening around them militarily and politically and religiously and spiritually in their country and their mouths were open with astonishment and confusion. They were saying, what is happening? What is going on around us? How can we weather these things? How can we make it through this? Sounds like the, the words I hear a lot of Christians today. The words are words of nightmare. Look at what he said, verses 2 and 3. You have made the earth tremble. You have broken it. Heal its branches, for it is shaking. You have shown your people hard things. You have made us drink the wine of confusion. He says, oh God, we have gone through some lessons that aren't fun to learn. We've gone through some hard lessons. The discipline of the hand of God is tough. 
And he says, the, he says, Lord, you have shown us these things. But now, O oh Lord, look at verse 4. Now he reminds himself of the great things God has done. Verse 4, he says, you have given a banner to those who fear you that it may be displayed because of the truth. Now God is, bring, God is, going to, is beginning to bring healing to the people of Israel. And God is lifting David up. And David says to himself, I do not want to fall prey to false humility. You know, I've heard so many people say, oh, oh, who am I? I could never be used by God. I have no gifts. I have no abilities. I have no anointing. Listen, can I tell you something? If God is with you, he is with you. If he has gifted you, he's gifted you. If he's called you, he's called you. That kind of false humility is not true spirituality. It denies gifts and graces of God. In fact, it is a type of pride that actually calls attention to ourselves because when we say that, oftentimes what we're really doing is we're begging for a pat on the back that says, oh, you're so humble, we sure appreciate that. It's that false humility that says, I'm humble and proud of it. On the other hand, David didn't want to fall into arrogance of spirit. He didn't want to fall into the trap of an independent heart that says, I can do anything and I don't need God. You know, we come to that place where we become independent of God himself, that that arrogance must be broken. Look, look at the contrast here in Psalm 60, verse 6. God has spoken in his holiness. I will rejoice I will divide Shechem and measure out the valley of Succoth. Gilead is mine and Manasseh is mine. Ephraim is also the helmet for my head. Judah is my lawgiver. Moab, now that's one of the enemies of Israel, the Moabites. And he says that Moab is my washpot. Now that's a very, very negative thing. It doesn't mean that it's some place where David is going to cleanse his hands. It means something more like this is where I'll wash my clothes and leave behind the residue of my filth. And he says, that's what Moab is to me. Look what he says next in verse 8. Over Edom, I will cast my shoe. He says, if I wash my clothes in Moab, then I'll take my sandals off and I'll casually toss them out across Edom. I will conquer the Edomites with no more effort than it takes for a man to casually flip his wrist and toss his soiled sandals to the side. And he finishes by saying, Philistia, shout in triumph because of me. Now look at verse 9. Here we see David's humility. This is so important. This is a big part of what I want to talk about today. He says, who will bring me to the strong city? Who will lead me to Eden? He's saying, who will do this? I know I'm going to do this. I know God will give me the victory. I know the Lord is with me. But who will cause this to happen? Then look at verse 10. Is it not you, O God, who cast us off? And you, O God, who did not go out with our armies, we received your punishment in the past. We received your disapproval. We've been through the brokenness. We've been through the warfare. We've been through the civil upheaval. Now, the same God that broke us is the God that's going to heal us. And then he says in verse 11, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. And then here's the balance in verse 12. Through God, we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Through God, we will do valiantly. For it is He who shall tread down our enemies. I want you to see that, that that tension that's there. And that's what I want to spend most of our time talking about. There is this divine tension that exists 
between human effort and divine anointing. There are some things that we must do. David did take an army out to war. David did march out. David did draw the sword. David did lead the armies. David did plan the battles. battles. But he said, he said, if I had done all of that, all the things that I did in my own strength without the anointing and the inspiration and the blessing and the guidance that I received from God, he said, if I had done that on my own, it would have come to nothing. The hand and the help of man is useless. Through God, I will do valiant. I shall do valiantly. But I remind myself, he says, that it is God who shall trout down my enemies, not me, not my strength, not my wisdom. I will act. I must act. God calls me to act. But at the same time, I know it is God himself who will win the victory. This conflict, this, this seeming contradiction is also clear in the writings of Paul in the New Testament as he tries to deal with this tension between personal pride and false humility. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this of himself. This is really something to hear this, to read this, that Paul wrote this. He said, we have become the scum of the earth, the garbage of the world. Paul says that he is the scum of the earth and the garbage of the world. Now the dictionary says that scum is a film or uh, or a layer of, of foul or extraneous matter that forms on the surface of a liquid. It says it's refuge or obscourings, or it says that it's a low, a worthless, or evil person. And Paul says, that's about what I am. I'm not much more than garbage. But then he turns around in 1 Timothy 1.1, and he calls himself an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God. And then in 1 Timothy 1.15, he says that he is the chief of all sinners, but then in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, I am the righteousness of God in Christ. And in 1 Corinthians 2, he says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. But then in Philippians 4.13, he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This is the tension that must exist in us. It's a healthy tension. It is a sublime tension. If I lose either one of these, I fall into imbalance. If I lose the conquering power of God, then I live in dread and fear saying, oh, what will become of me? There's no hope for me. We live constantly beaten down, but there, there must be that in me that says I'm an overcomer. I am more than a conqueror. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, I remember first time I ever sang a song in front of an audience. God had saved me at a youth camp, done a marvelous work in my life, and I and I wanted to be used by him. I felt called by God. I wanted to be used by him. And one of the things I'd, I've always loved to sing. I've loved singing. And, and so I decided I would sing in church. I remember the first time. Mary Beth, do you remember the first time you ever sang in front of people? First time I ever sang in front of, a, in front of the church. It was a Sunday night. There was, I mean, not, I mean, just a handful, maybe 10 people there at the most. That, that would have been a big Sunday night back in those days. But I remember standing there, I remember how scared and how nervous I was. I remember my knees shaking so badly, I literally thought I was going to collapse. I didn't know if I was going to be able to support my weight. But I kept thinking to myself, I can do all things through Christ. I remember the first time I preached a sermon, which was really hilarious. I'm just sad that it's, I'm just sad that it was not recorded uh, so that you could hear it, you know, probably all seven minutes of it. Uh, you know, and, and preached. I had a friend one time. He said he said the first time he ever preached, he preached from Genesis to Revelation in ten minutes. 
You know, and he just got it all in in 10 minutes. But I remember the first time I preached. I, I, my pastor knew that God had called me to preach, and so he invited me to preach on a Sunday evening. And I remember being so afraid. Uh, but, but at the same time, I was thinking, I can do all things through Christ. I remember the first time I shared Jesus with a friend. It was, I was really uncomfortable. I was scared. I was nervous. I wondered if I was even going to lose a friend. But I was thinking I can do all things through Christ. Here's the thing. I had to grab the mic and sing. I had to step on the platform and preach. I had to walk over to my friend and tell him about Jesus. That's what I was talking about earlier when I said you have to give him something to anoint. I couldn't just pray and say, Jesus, I would really like you to bless these people with this song, but I don't want to sing it. Father, please change people through this sermon, but I ain't going to be the one to preach it. Spirit, soften my friend's heart and help him to know you like I know you, but I'm not, I'm not about to tell him about you myself. You see, I had to take action. That's the step of faith that we were talking about, that the Lord was speaking to us about in the worship service today. I had to take action, but I still knew, even as I took action, that it was Christ in me and not my own efforts that was going to make a difference. This is a very difficult tension to get. I remember hearing some time ago about a riot in a South Texas town back in the 1860s. There was a dispute going on between the cattle ranchers and the, and the squatters. And it, and it turned out that uh, after a while, it just turned to an out-and-out -out riot in this little town. And the authorities in the town knew that they needed some help, so they sent a telegraph up to the Texas Rangers headquarters, not the baseball team, <laughs> the law enforcement officers, and he sent, sent a telegraph up to them saying, there's a riot. Please send help. Well, a telegram came back to them that said, help will be on the 310 train from, from Austin. Well, they met the 310 train and off the train stepped a single Texas Ranger. And they looked at him and said, you're it? One Ranger? We, they, they said, we've got a riot here. And, and they only sent one ranger? And the ranger said, well, if you've only got one right, you only get one ranger. See, there's a quiet confidence in knowing that you have the forces and the resources of all of the Texas rangers behind you. And there is a calm assurance that comes from knowing that God is with you. God's not going to abandon you. You were not made to die, but to live. You, you were not made to fail, but to succeed. The Lord is with you. He's with us as individuals. He's with uh, us in our families. He's with us in our church. And it should give us a, uh, that, that calmness and that assurance. But at the same time, if we lose that sense of dependency upon God, even for a fraction of a second, we'll fall into pride and arrogance. If we forget our dependency for even a second, We'll fall into the trap of arrogance that, that now no longer says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but instead we just simply say I can do all things. We must not make the quantum leap from I can do nothing without Jesus to I can do all things. We must dwell squarely in the household of I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but on my own. I'm nothing more than the scum of the earth on my own. 
On my own, own, I live in weakness and fear and trembling. But in the power of God, I can preach under an, an anointing. On my own, I'm filled with fear and dread and trembling. But with the power of God, I can do anything that God calls me to do. The arm of the flesh will fail me, but the arm of God will not. I will go out. I will do great things. Yet God will trample down the enemies. This great tension is is at the very heart of our faith and it's at the very heart of what it means to live with gratitude. See, giving thanks and, and praising God require the humility of being able to say to God, there are things that we cannot do for ourselves. Do you know what one of the most irritating and aggravating sins in the whole world is? Some of you probably have a few guesses. But I think it's an independent spirit in someone that cannot even feed himself. It's an irritating thing. How many of you have ever raised a two-year-old? Let me see your hand. You ever had a two-year-old? You ever been around a two-year-old? They get to the point where they can walk, maybe even run a little bit. Well, run a little bit. They can run faster than I can now. (laughs) Two-year-old gets away from me. They're on their own because I can't catch up to them. They get to where they they have a vocabulary of 25, 50 words, whatever. They can't really do anything. They can't work. They can't drive. They can't really feed themselves. They can't cook. Well, you take that two-year-old into a store with you, and and as you're walking through uh, the store, and you're holding their little hand because you want to make sure they stay out of danger, and as you're walking along, how many of you ever had that moment where that two-year-old just sort of jerks their hand away from you, and then when you go to grab their hand again, they put it behind their back? You ever had that moment? I'm telling you, I don't know, maybe it's just me, but that just gets on my nerves like ugly on an ape. You know? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that just really, think of that. I mean, this kid can't even put his pants on right. They don't know how to button up their shirt right. And you're going to jerk your hand away from me? I mean, isn't that awful? I wonder how many times, though, God says, or how many times he has said to you or to me, you... You pipsqueak. I wonder how many times God has looked down at my life and said, you can't feed yourself. You can't work. You can't do anything. You can't plan. You can't preach. You have no strength. And you're going to jerk your hand away from me? Mm, mm, mm. I wonder how many times. That's what I hear David saying in Psalm 60. David is saying, Lord, we've, we've won great conquests. Oh God, we've conquered our enemies on every hand. Oh oh God, you've been with us. It's been great. I thank you, God. I feel your strength in me. I can do valiantly. I will go forth against my enemies because you are with me. I'm not a coward. I'm a winner. But oh God, I'm grateful. Oh God, I love you. I'm nothing without you. I praise you and I thank you. And just as irritating as that independent and arrogant two-year-old that jerks his hand away from you in the parking lot, how wonderful are those tender and precious moments when your child looks up at you and, and looks up at mommy and just says, thank you. Mom, that was a great meal. Thanks. Hey, Dad, thanks for everything. How wonderful are those moments when the Sunday school student says to the teacher, thank you for loving me. It expresses a a deep sense of gratitude. It expresses a humility that that there are some things that I cannot do for myself. 
and thank you for doing it for me. We need to say thank you to God. But you know what? We also need to say it to each other from time to time. Thank you. I appreciate who you are. I appreciate what you do. I heard a pastor tell a story about a funeral that he preached a number of years ago. A lady in his church had passed away. She, she was a, a precious saint of God. She, was, she loved the Lord and was earnest about the things of God. And her, her husband came to the church, you know, every once in a while just to get her off his back, that kind of thing. Well, the pastor walked into the funeral home where the service was being held. And as he walked in, he saw that the casket was just covered with the most beautiful blanket of roses that he had ever seen in his life. And there were huge stands filled with roses on both sides of the casket. It, it was just breathtaking. It was beautiful. The, the, the pastor um, uh, looked, saw all of this and he, and he went to the woman's husband, whose name was Henry, and he said, Henry, where did those roses come from? And he said, I, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you about that, pastor. He said, you know, Martha always loved roses. She always, she just loved roses. We'd be driving along, down alongside of the road and we would see some people selling flowers and she'd say, oh, Henry, why don't you buy me flowers? Why don't you ever bring me flowers? He said, well, I was just never much into all that emotional, real romantic stuff. Then he said, I'm making it up to her now. She couldn't even smell them. You're not going to make it up to your mom at her funeral. You're not going to make it up to your dad when he's in his casket. You're not going to make it up to God later on. There's a humility in gratitude. There's a brokenness in saying, Oh God, these victories that you've given to me, these triumphs that you've given to me, I thank you for them. I know I didn't win them. You did the work. The prosperous businessman who goes into his prayer closet alone and says, Oh God, I, I thank you. I praise you for what you've done. You've given me wisdom. You, you've given me clarity of purpose. You've given me, uh, uh, you, you blessed me, you, my business. You prospered me. And I know where it came from. I know where it came from. Thank you, God. Praise you, God. Husbands, let me just say, give them the roses now. Give them the roses now. Listen, kids, don't wait for all the regrets to cave in on you at your parents' funeral. Tell them you love them now. Tell them you appreciate them now. Show a little humble, brokenhearted thanksgiving. Listen, saints of God, most importantly, tell God that you are grateful. Tell him how grateful you are. I mean, on your knees, on your face before God, say, oh God, you have blessed me. The church ought to be grateful to God. Look how he, this church ought to be grateful to God. Not just the church at large. Look at how he has blessed us. This church exists because God has done wonders. We've gone out against our enemies. We've done the best we knew to do. We drew the sword. We marched. We planned. We prayed. But I know and you know that this church is here not because of the touch of human hand, but because of the hand of Almighty God. God has done this. Of all the places in the world that ought to be grateful to God, it's the United States of America. 
If we trust in our missiles, our military, our technology, our wealth, our might, or God forbid, if we trust in our government, we're undone. Our weapons will rust in the field and our enemies will be in our homes. We should fall on our knees before God and say, Oh God, we went out against our enemies in World War I and you blessed us. We went out against our enemies in World War II and you prospered us. Oh God, you've defended us and you've watched over us. We've done valiantly, but we know that it is you who has tread down our enemies. It's you that has done it and not we ourselves. If we stamp in God, we trust on our coins. And then in arrogance of heart say, we have made ourselves what we are. Then we as a nation are doomed. We must, like David, remember to say, I will obey. I will go forth in the courage God gives me to accomplish the purpose that he's put before me. But as I do that, as I walk forth, as I go out to do valiantly, I do it in deep humility and gratitude, remembering that none of it is accomplished in my own strength. But I am his. If we don't keep this tension, if we don't keep this balance, we'll begin to put on false airs. We'll begin to pretend that we are things that we're not. I heard the story of one lady who worked as the maid for a well-to-do woman. This is a true story. This lady worked as a maid for this, this wealthy woman, and the lady went to her employer one day, and she said, you know, after all your parties, because the lady would have these groups of wealthy people over her parties, she said, after all your parties, can I have the caviar cans? And the wealthy woman said, well, well they're empty. What do, what do you want them for? Why would you want empty caviar cans? And the maid said, well, I just want to take them home and put them in my garbage can. She said, the garbage man is a friend of mine, and I want him to see the caviar cans in my garbage can. Isn't that funny? Isn't that funny? She, she doesn't eat caviar. She can't afford to buy caviar. She doesn't even like caviar. But she wants the cans to be in her, her garbage to make herself look better to her friend. Unless we keep our humility and our brokenness before God, we'll fall into a situation where we know what we are, but we'll want caviar cans in the trash to project an image to the people around us. Playing games with each other, putting on airs. It's false. It's artificial, it's contrived, and God forbid that we ever go down that road. But there is another way. There is another way. I want to close with this. The president of a New England university, university 100 years ago, more than that now, he gave a stirring testimony. He said that when he was a little boy during a frozen New England winter, he determined to go out on a local pond and skate on the ice. His father said to him, son, the ice is not thick enough and he forbade him to go. He said, do not go out on the ice. Well, guess what the boy did? The boy waited until his father was out of sight. He strapped on his skates and went down to the pond. And he threw out some large stones onto the ice. And, and it supported the ice, supported the stones. So he said, oh, that old fool doesn't know what he's talking about. Those stones weigh as much as I do. So he skated out on the ice. And he was cutting circles and enjoying himself on the ice when it began to crack beneath him before he could make it to the shoreline and onto the solid ground the ice broke and underneath him out from underneath him and he plunged into those icy waters he woke up three weeks later 
in the local hospital after being in a coma for the entire time. They told him, you're alive because the local schoolmaster dived into the frozen water and pulled you out. They said you were at the point of death when he jumped into the ice of water and pulled you out. The little boy said to his dad, I want to thank him. I want to thank you for what he's done. I want to thank him. And his father said, as soon as you're well enough, we'll go see him. But two months later, the, finally the father said, you're well enough. Let's go see the schoolmaster. And he took that little boy's hand and led him into the lo- local cemetery and said, there he lies. He gave his life in saving you. He died. That little boy who would later be a college president fell on his knees there at the tombstone of a local educator and said, if anyone would give his life for mine, then I'm going to give my life that it counts. The greatest act of gratitude is to give your life to God so that it will count. Someone died for you. His name is Jesus. It is His victory wherein you stand. It is His liberty wherein you stand. It is His righteousness wherein you stand. It is His sacrifice that has opened the doorway to God. It is His mercy that endured. It is His goodness that lasts from generation to generation. It is His priesthood that represents you before God. He is our anchor within the veil. He is the sacrifice. He is the tabernacle. He is the showbread. He is the mercy seat. It is all Jesus. And He died that we might have these blessings from God. So yes, we go out against the enemy. Yes, we will do valiantly. This church will do great things. You will do great things. But it is He that treads down our enemies before us. The reason we will do great things is not because we're a great church. It's because we serve a great God. And He is with us. He is with us. And the greatest, most realistic, most logical, and most powerful response that we can offer is to say, Oh God, in all humility, I thank You for what You've done in me and through me and for me. But I want my life to count on me. Own me, Jesus. Own me. Every head bowed, every eye closed, all over the place. Father, we believe that you're calling us to do great things. But Lord, it's not going to be because we plan well. It's not going to be because we execute that plan well. It's not because of the great ideas that we come up with. It's not because of anything that we do, Lord God. We we will do those things because you call us to do what we can and to put something before you that you can anoint. We will do those things, but God, none of those things are going to be successful if you don't go before us. And so God, that's what we're here to pray today. We're here just to humble ourselves and say, God, we know that without you, without your anointing, without your spirit, we are weak We are like Paul said, we are the scum of the earth. We have nothing to offer but you. But Lord, with your power, 
residing in us, with your anointing resting upon us, with your hand on us, with you going before us, God, there is nothing that cannot be accomplished. Lord, we will do valiantly. We will do great works, not because of us, but because we know who you are. Because you, you walk with us. You empower us. You anoint us. You call us. And God, I pray that every person in this room would realize that this is not true just for the church, but God, it's also true for each of us individually. God, you're calling people to do great things. And and, and we're not going to try to define the great things by saying that they have to be big things, but God, a great thing is to lead a single person to Jesus. A great thing is to give a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus to someone who's thirsty. A great thing is to make a difference in the life of someone who's hurting by being there and loving them and praying with them and and sharing the love of Christ with them. Lord, we will do great things and the enemy will be trampled down, not because of us, but because of you. There will be those that are running from God that are going to come home. We believe that. We declare that in this place. But it's because of you, not because of us. There are those that are lost They're so lost. They're wandering around in darkness. And they're going to see the light of Jesus because you're going before us. This Easter egg hunt, Lord God, and Easter Sunday, they're going to be powerful moments and they're going to be people who come to know Christ. But it's not because we did an Easter egg hunt. It's not because we had a great Easter presentation. But it's because of your anointing and your spirit that is resting upon us. You're going to go before us, God. So we humble ourselves before you and we look at our past and we see the many victories. We see the many triumphs, the battles that have been fought. And first of all, God, we just simply say thank you. Thank you for what you brought us through. There are people in this room right now remembering the dark times in their lives, the most difficult moments of their lives. And they're remembering how you carried them through. And right now, God, we say thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And God, we know that the same God who carried us through all of those things, the same God who, who, who took care of us in our dark times, the same God who walked through this church in the toughest times that it has ever known in the past is the same God who is with us now. Therefore, God, we will do valiantly because we know the one who is going to trample down his enemies before us. Lord, I just pray that you would help each one of us. This moment, Lord God, we would just simply say thank you. Would you do that right where you are? Would you just say thank you to him? Think of what he's done in your life. Think of the battles that you've walked through, the dark times, the the hardest times you've you've ever experienced, and you know he has been with you. Some of you are walking through it now. But you can still say, thank you, God, for being with me. Thank you for never abandoning me. Would you do that right now? Just lift your hand to him, would you? Right where you are, just say, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord God. Thank you for seeing me through the the, the hard times of my life. And God, we thank you. Thank you that you're here in this place. Thank you that you're going to do great things. Thank you that you have plans for our lives. You have plans for this church. 
You have plans for this community. You're going you're to raise up a light that, will, that the nations can see. And you will be glorified. We give you thanks, oh God. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us this week to do something. We know that we have friends that need Jesus, and I pray, God, that you would help us to go tell them, knowing that, you're, that it's, it's all resting upon your anointing. So, Lord, we, we want to do something and offer it to you so that you can anoint it, you can use us. Open doors of, of ministry this week. Give us opportunities to, to love someone, to care for someone, to even give a cup of cold water. But, Lord, that we would always do it all in your name that the name of Jesus would be made famous. God, use us. Build your kingdom in in us and through us, God. We pray it all in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.